Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. To keep expectations well anchored, the usual two guests in two segments today. Gerald Epstein will talk about the Bankers Club and how to bust it, and Anna Kornblue will explore our cultural proclivity to live in the moment. Bankers, and I use the term loosely, make too much money, do little useful, and periodically drive the economy into a ditch. Though this could be read as shallow populism, it's fundamentally true and could be fleshed out without betraying the original sentiments. Here to provide some of that elaboration is Gerald, a.k.a. Jerry Epstein. His new book, Busting the Bankers Club, Finance for the Rest of Us, was published last month by the University of California Press. It's a taxonomy of the current system and a set of suggestions on how to fight it. Jerry is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and co-director of its political economy research institute, Perry. I should make it clear that by bankers he means not just the likes of Chase and Wells Fargo, but also other institutions like hedge funds, private equity, and asset managers like Vanguard. Gerald Epstein. Uh, So let's do a a stylized history of the last, I don't know, 100 years or so. Banking was pretty wild going into the 1929 crash. Then the New Deal reforms made it boring for a few decades. Bankers got sick of it being bored, hired some politicians, and made it fun again starting in the 1980s. Is that a fair capsule history? Yeah, that's a fair capsule of history, but it just wasn't just politicians. Uh, the Bankers Club consists not only of the regular suspects like politicians who the bankers pay off, many other groups, uh, including the Federal Reserve, which I call the chairman of the club, lawyers, regulatory uh, agencies, uh, even economists, and even non-financial capitalists. So it's not just the politicians who we normally think of, but, but a whole collection of actors out there supporting the banks. What prompted the changes starting in the late 70s, you know, into the 1980s that really transformed banking from that stodgy old New Deal uh, holdover into <laughs> the glory that it is today? Well, part of it is that there was a distance, a time distance, and people had forgotten about what miserable folks the uh, bankers were. Um, but that's a small part of it. Um, it gave time for the banks to tr- uh, figure out ways to evade the New Deal restrictions by going over overseas into the euro dollar market and financing their customers over there. But it also took a change in the Democratic Party from a much more New Deal working class oriented Democratic Party, which of course always had capitalist supporters, but to the more neoliberal Democrats that uh, we know, from Bill Clinton and the like. But a major thing that did it was that no financial regulatory system can last forever. So we had the high inflation of the late 60s, early 70s, and the disruptions from OPEC and the Vietnam War, which really threw a wrench in some of the rigid aspects of the New Deal banking system. Specifically, there were ceilings on interest rates that banks could pay depositors and could charge customers. And when inflation went up, banks want or even need to raise interest rates to keep up with inflation so that they can attract depositors. And what happened was those banks that were under the the New Deal regulations, which made it so that they couldn't raise interest rates. So there was financial innovation. The money market funds came in, offered money market accounts that could pay higher interest rates. So there was this disintermediation or uh, out of the banks, that is people, and especially businesses, pulled their money out of the banks, put them into money market accounts or the euro dollar market, and the banks actually couldn't compete. So there had to be some changes in the New Deal system that would allow for the core commercial banking system to, to compete under these changed circumstances. The government could have reformed the system, made it more flexible, but instead the big banks saw this as an opportunity to try to junk the whole system. They used lobbying and their money to bring in regulators and economists and lawyers and so forth, and the Federal Reserve, especially under Alan Greenspan, who was a huge supporter, and they eventually got rid of this New Deal system. What exactly do banks do? And I'm using banks broadly to include all these other institutions as well. They're supposed to finance real production, but do they actually do that? What do they do and how do they make their money? 
So this is what banks and other financial institutions are supposed to do. This is what a capitalist economy and in fact, almost any kind of economy needs from financial institutions. Number one, they need to lend money to productive firms that need loans and need credit. Credit is a kind of an intermediate product that supports the rest of the economy, and banks are a key institution that provide that, largely because banks can create money. Banks have a, a charter from the government that gives them special privileges, and the special privileges include they can deposit money in businesses and households' checking accounts, and they can call that money, and that allows banks to have a privileged position in the financial system to create liquidity and utilize it to lend to businesses and so forth. So that's number one. Number two, banks are a place where households and businesses can hold their funds, their savings, their uh, everyday working capital and so forth. And since the passage of deposit insurance in the 1930s, banks can provide a safe place for people to put funds. Third, banks and other financial institutions like life insurance companies and asset management firms and so forth can help people save for big ticket items that they need, education, retirement, and uh, the financial system provides a payments mechanism uh, whereby people can just buy stuff and money goes from Joe to Trader Joe's to buy pasta. Finally, banks are supposed to lower risk, that is, provide insurance of various kinds, life insurance, medical insurance. So these are all things that banks are supposed to do. But in fact, as you hinted, our modern banking system, which I call roaring banking, there was this transition from boring banking to our current roaring banking, they mostly lend to each other. Big companies don't rely on banks for loans for, for investment. They might rely on them to help them underwrite securities and that kind of thing but not to actually finance investment. This is an important point. Most large non-financial firms are self-financing. That's right. They don't right. really need a whole lot of outside money unless they're going to do takeovers or things like That's that. Right. That's just right. Just to finance production, they finance it mostly out of profits, investment out of profits. That's right. It wasn't always the case. As my book shows, in the 1950s and up to the middle to late 60s, companies did rely on banks. But these days, you're right, it's, it's mostly accumulated profits. And to the extent that they borrow from banks in the financial markets, it's usually, as you said, for takeovers and financialized dealings among themselves. So what do these financial institutions really do? A lot of it is lending to each other, speculating, uh, doing structured products uh, like asset-backed securities, collateralized debt obligations, trading in derivatives, all of these kinds of things, much of which doesn't really contribute all that much to you and me. And there's now a large sector, uh, we call, I guess, shadow banking, non-bank institutions like hedge funds, private equity. The banks themselves, traditional banks, are still fairly regulated, but there's this whole Wild West sector, shadow banking. How do they fit into this situation, and uh, how different are the old conventional banks from their shadow brethren now? The shadow banks have really grown significantly since the great financial crisis. They've become a larger share of not only the U.S. financial system, but the global financial system. The Dodd-Frank Act, which was passed after the great financial crisis, uh, missed a great opportunity. They should have brought all of these institutions under the, a regulatory control, but didn't do it. That meant that there was this huge loophole in the Dodd-Frank Act and allowed these institutions to, to really grow. And we've already seen some of the negative consequences from this. So, for example, when the COVID crisis hit in 2020, the global financial system almost, almost melted down again, as it had in 2007, 2008. This time, the culprits were not the major banks. It was these shadow institutions, you know, the hedge funds and so forth, that took enormous bets and crashed. This problem is compounded by the fact that many of these institutions are now, quote-unquote, private. That is... They're not subject to the same controls as publicly traded institutions. They're these private or dark markets. We think of these as separate from the major banks, but they're not really separate in the sense that one of the things that happened with the transition to roaring banking is to create universal banks, banks that could do everything and anything. And that includes financing, investing in, being part of the network that the shadow banks are also involved in. So I don't think it's accurate to think about them as separate. 
the mega banks are still at the core of this financial system, even when we're thinking about uh, many of the shadow banking institutions. Any kind of financial transaction has to go through a bank at some point, right? It's pretty hard to avoid that. Yeah, even crypto, even though they're claimed to be, you know, completely independent of the of the evil banks. Uh, but yeah, even those go through the banking system. You can't buy a house or a sandwich with crypto, so you gotta you gotta <laughs> go through a bank somewhere. You did some calculations to try to estimate the degree of waste in this whole system, and you come up with a number, a very large number, even by the standards of people who are used to looking at GDP, of 45 to $70 trillion. What is the nature of this waste? Where does it all go? Well, first of all, let me talk about where the waste comes from. What my former graduate student, now professor of economics at American University, uh, Juan Montesino, and I did was say, okay, let's do a back-of-the-envelope calculation of what is the net contribution of this roaring banking system to our economy relative to, say, kind of a standard boring banking system that we had before that provided basic needs. We looked at three aspects. One, the likelihood that financial system would cause a, a financial crisis of the type we had 2007, 2008, and the net costs of that. Second of all, we looked at the degree to which these financial institutions uh, get rents, that is, get salaries, bonuses, etc., over and above what the uh, average worker gets, an average CEO gets, but taking into account all of the factors which might justify them getting higher bonuses and pay. So, for example, longer working hours or taking more risk, etc. And also looked at the degree to which the profits that these banking institutions were getting over and above what was justified by their activity. And the third component is, to what extent are these financial institutions misallocating resources? Uh, there's a literature in economics that's called Too Big Finance, that is, has looked at a set of countries, rich countries, and said, what's the correlation between the size of the banking sector and the rate of economic growth? And this literature has shown empirically that the size of the banking sector can be too big for the economy. As it gets too big relative to the size of the economy, the rate of economic growth actually goes down rather than up. The reason probably is that it draws too many highly skilled workers into finance rather than into more useful endeavors, medicine, science, uh, teaching, etc. We added up all of these costs of our current financial system, which is way too big. There are way too many rents. It causes financial crises. So these allocation costs, rent costs, and crisis costs all add up to this large figure that you talked about, not relative to no financial system. We need a financial system, but relative to a, a decently functioning financial system. Part of the reason we did this calculation was to answer the following question. The banks say, if you regulate us too much, if you don't bail us out, then we're going to go someplace else. We're going to go to London, or we're going to go to Frankfurt, we're going to go to Shanghai or Hong Kong. And this is kind of a club that the uh, banks hold over the head of the government and the economy. It's mostly a problem if they really contribute a lot to our society, to our economy. And what we found is that it's a net drain. This banking system that we have is a net drain on our system. So next time uh, the big banks threaten to leave and the financial institutions threaten to leave, uh, we should just say goodbye. I'm speaking with Gerald Epstein, author of Busting the Bankers Club, just out from the University of California Press. So for years, uh, the Federal Reserve, we, the standard progressive line of the Fed has been that it's an agent of austerity on behalf of the bankers and bosses, which God knows it has been. But starting with a global financial crisis and running through you know, sometime in 2022, it's, it held interest rates close to zero and pumped trillions into the financial system. What are the effects of that been and how should it change how we think about the Fed as a political actor? The way I think about the Federal Reserve, and this is based on work I did years ago with my friend and colleague, Juliet Shore, is to think of the Federal Reserve as a contested terrain. The major classes, class factions, contest for influence and control over the Fed because it's such an important macroeconomic and regulatory institution in our economy. Banks, finance, has a leg up in this battle, partly because the Fed regulates the bank. It can give them favors and get favors from them. Uh, what, what favors does the Fed want from the banks? Well, it wants the banks to uh, give it political support when the president and the Congress try to boss the Fed around. So as Milton Friedman said, you know, when the 
the Federal Reserve is uh, so-called independent. It's really dependent on, on the banks for political support. So that's part of it. But also, the Fed depends on a healthy banking system for it to conduct its monetary policy. And finally, the banks provide all kinds of revolving door jobs for Federal Reserve officials and staffers and so forth. That's another way in which uh, these two sets of institutions are joined at the hip. But the Fed has to look after bigger game too. It's the chair of the, uh, also of the bourgeoisie as a whole. So it can't uh, support the banks alone. But to answer your, your question specifically, what my research has shown with my current graduate student, Aaron Medlin and, and others, is the Fed tries to maximize the long-run profits of the financial system when it can. But this doesn't always mean austerity. What the Fed really tries to do is make sure there's low inflation and stable inflation because banks and creditors don't like inflation. But the Fed also likes to keep asset prices high because when it raises asset prices, it, it increases the wealth of the wealthy, the 1%, and the asset values of the banks and financial institutions. So how to do that? Well, it depends on the larger economy. Greenspan started pursuing a low interest rate policy long before the financial crisis. He started doing that in the early 2000s. So he dropped interest rates. People said that it used to be the Greenspan put. That is, he would keep interest rates low in order to keep asset prices high. How was he able to do this? Uh, what about inflation? Well, the reason he was able to do this is because of the 30-year war that uh, the capitalists under Reagan and others had waged against the unions. And so workers' uh, power was flat on its back. We had the uh, imports from China, the China price keeping inflation low. So in a low inflation environment, the strategy opted for by Greenspan was to keep interest rates low to raise asset prices. And then when the financial crisis hit, of course, the Fed's first job was to bail out the banks. That's always the Fed's first job, and they did that very well. And they kept interest rates low afterwards because inflation remained very low. It was only when inflation started going up after the COVID crisis that the Fed reverted to a rapid increase in interest rates, once again, largely to protect uh, the, the real value of the wealth of the, the banks and, and the top 1%. So it's not accurate to say that when the Fed acts in the interests of the banks, it always pursues austerity. That's just not how it works. The convention of these interviews is we reserve the last five minutes for the what is to be done question. And here we are. These guys are enormously powerful, enormously rich, very formidable opponents. How do we subdue them? And to what end? What would a financial system look like, a proper financial system? The last third of my book, or the last section of my book, is devoted to this question. What would a good financial system look like? Well, it would, first of all, do all those functions that I mentioned earlier well, number one. Number two, it would um, contribute to the prosperity of marginalized groups, people of color in, in, in poor communities, for example. It would contribute resources, lending and, and investment, to help us make major transitions like for example, the green transition to deal with climate change. It would provide basic financial services uh, without overcharging or misleading customers. So, for example, um, asset managers would put customers into good investments at low fees rather than bad investments with high fees. And uh, we'd have a Federal Reserve that would make monetary policy for, for society rather than just for the top 1%. So how do we bring this about? There are two broad things we need to do. One is much better regulation. We need to bring all of the financial markets and institutions under the regulatory authority to prevent financial crises and, and so forth. But regulation needs to do more than just prevent financial crises. It has to support positive goals for the financial system, including the, some of the things I just mentioned, giving credit in poor communities, helping to finance the green transition, etc. But Regulating finance isn't going to be enough because private financial institutions are never really going to do enough to serve society. So the, the next to the last chapter is all about public financial institutions, uh, public banks, not-for-profit banking system, institutions that will serve these communities, that will serve customers uh, cheap, uh, with good products uh, more cheaply, 
that will invest in green energy, etc. Who's going to bring all this about? Well, a big part of my book, we haven't talked about this yet, are the club busters. My book doesn't just talk about the Bankers Club, but it talks a lot about who are the groups that are fighting against the Bankers Club. So for example, there's a public banking groups all over the country fighting for public banks. There's some in New York that have been doing great work on this, uh, California, Massachusetts, all over the country. Institutions like Better Markets and Americans for Financial Reform who've been pushing for better financial regulation. Labor unions, the FLCIO has been involved in this. It's the club busters who are going to bring about this change. But how's that going to happen? As you said, a lot of my book is about how powerful the banks are. How are the club busters going to bring about these changes? And I argue in the last chapter that, yes, we need more democracy. More generally, we need to get money out of politics. But we also just need kind of a, a full court press of club busters doing different things, public banking, pushing to, to stop investment in fossil fuels, uh, community redevelopment, etc. People joining the club busters, getting involved in a variety of different activities. And the more we do that, the more movement there's going to be towards a better financial system. And if we get enough movement moving forward, then um, I think it's going to tip the balance in, in favor of reform. So that's my hope. And one of my goals for writing this book was to get more club busters out there. Uh, let's hope so. That's a final question. Uh, some of the things you're talking about, financing the green transition, supporting uh, historically uh, marginalized uh, groups. Should that be the province of the financial system, or why should that just not be public investment that could do those things? And also, I'm thinking of uh, pension funds. Like, why do we even need pension funds? Why don't we have a well-financed uh, public uh, pension system, and we don't need all this money that financiers can play with? What do you say to that? All good points. We need more social pr provision, right? We need. Uh, it'd be better to have national health insurance than rely on private health insurance. It'd be better to have a more robust uh, social old age pension uh, system rather than uh, rely on the private one that generates a lot of profits for finance. Absolutely. One of the things that I talk about in the book is that in addition to these, we do need more government investment in all of these activities we were just talking about. But a lot of this can be channeled through uh, public financial institutions. We have a large economy. It's decentralized. We can have the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, channel resources to green development banks, municipal banks, public banks, uh, regional public banks, and so forth, so that we have uh, kind of a smaller set of uh, di diversified public financial institutions at the local level and regional level. It doesn't all have to come uh, out of Washington. So yes, public finance of these things is crucial but it doesn't all have to be centralized uh, in D.C. That was Gerald Epstein, professor of economics at UMass and the author of Busting the Bankers Club, published by the University of California Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. The No Future part is a setup for the next segment, Anna Kornblue talking about her even newer book, Immediacy, or the Style of Too Late Capitalism, from Verso. This might seem a little off-topic for Behind the News, but it's good to get out now and then, and besides, it's a return to my intellectual roots in literary studies, which I never really left behind. In his wonderful little book on television, the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu said that TV loved fast thinkers who wouldn't interrupt the medium's flow with anything critical or against the grain. 
can't have people rethinking their assumptions. That makes for an unfavorable advertising environment. Now that we've moved beyond TV, we've turned up the speed even more. Everything is supposed to be immediate and transparent. Interestingly, Anna Kornblue uses the same word Jerry used in his interview, disintermediation. In finance, it means moving money from banks to looser financial institutions. In Anna's sense, it means jumping over representation and structure. It's all right there before you, sped up on TikTok with no middlemen. There seem to be some parallels. Her book looks at a variety of cultural practices, academic theory, streaming video, immersive Van Gogh. We talk at some length about the two autos, autofiction, a genre that, as its name suggests, blends autobiography and fictional technique, with the artifice of the process foregrounded, and auto theory, a mode that brings the personal and the physical into a realm that has historically been suffused with abstraction. Some of that seems healthy, but the hostility towards fiction and abstraction is also symptomatic of a circumscribed horizon and an inability to step out of oneself. Here's Anna Kornblue, whose day job is as a professor of English at the University of Illinois, Chicago, to help us understand where we are and how to get out of it. So this world we're living in now is not exactly what we used to call postmodernism, is it? What's the difference? What happened? Yeah, some things are different, even though some things are also the same. And how do, how do we kind of put a strong analytic point on that? Critics, I think, of aesthetic production have been some of the people to more and more agree that postmodernism isn't the term that describes um, art and culture uh, any longer. But there's been a kind of sifting around looking for a term. Some people like post-postmodernism. Uh, I'm trying to suggest immediacy as a, a meaningful kind of different category where we have the same kind of underlying economic conditions for postmodernism, globalization, multinational corporations, the compression of time and space, but that those things have um, intensified over the 40 plus years since Jameson articulated that category and David Harvey articulated that category. Um, and also the base relations of secular stagnation have come into consciousness and wreaked their havoc on everyday life all over the world. And that cultural aesthetics are responding differently now. So immediacy is kind of my effort to name that difference. Immediacy is a word with uh, multiple meanings. Immediacy meaning in the sense of right now, but also without mediating structures. So yeah, tell us what precisely constitutes immediacy. I do like all of those things. I think the limitless um, thirst for right now, right here, immersion, intensity, realness um, is part of it. And the rejection of mediating structures or intervening structures, uh, the intolerance for representation or for the thicknesses of um, language and finding forms and finding ideas that work as bridges that sort of take us out of the immersive experiential quality of the right here, right now, that give us distance in time or in perspective on things. All of that negation of mediation and, uh, you know, surging of the fullness of, of presence or intensity, imminence, that's what I mean by immediacy. Um, but the kind of colloquial things about speed and um, then the ways that in our everyday um, cultural and economic activities, we rely now on fluidity direct message, instant access, on demand, all of those kind of features as um, real economic infrastructures for these uh, sensations of immediacy. That's what I'm kind of interested in encompassing with the term. What is the relation to this sense of speed up with just-in-time practices in industry, for example? There's been some really interesting work trying to think about our speedy culture, um, both by sociologists and art historians and uh, philosophers. Just-in-time logistics is, um, again, the kind of basis for understanding um, postmodernism originally, that this kind of integration of time and space is a result of really efficient practices of exchange. But those practices are uh, revolutionized by information industry, digital technologies. They are um, intensified and streamlined in the uh, 21st century in sort of different ways than they were operating in original Toyotaization in the 70s and 80s. Just in time has become the maxim of how we consume and what little we produce and what we expect of uh, just experience now. Just in time is definitely the base uh, for the kind of intensities that I'm trying to describe. And a spreading sense of impermanence too. Yeah, um, right. Flexibility and evanescence and the kind of dissipation and disposability or uh, sudden loss or sudden breaks are features of um, 
the intensified exchange circuit for sure. And then, of course, is the omnipresent fear of climate catastrophe, <laughs> the, the fleetingness of human life uh, writ large. Absolutely. That's one of the things I'm really interested in. And that, you know, to go back to this question of postmodernism that I do think is different sort of in terms of affect and in terms of a historical horizon. If postmodernism involves what Jameson calls a loss of historicity, because there's this approach to the past as all available um, for um, collage and assembly and play, I'm really interested in our kind of loss of futurity now um, in the ways that the intensity and imminence of the present is pure vibe um, and like full feeling, but is also a result of the cutting off of the future. I do think about immediacy as a climate grief or a kind of climate symptom, this resignation of our faculties for um, abstraction and for representation and mediation and a kind of just abdication of, well, things are over. And so we shouldn't try to ameliorate it. We shouldn't try to mediate it in that sense. Yeah, my friend, the historian Steve Fraser, um, has written an essay, which he has yet to publish, uh, on the death of the future. But he said he dates the invention of the future about 500 years ago. So I'm really looking forward to what his analysis is on it. When I was doing some interviews several years ago, I was writing a piece about DSA during its days of rise. And I remember interviewing some young person and I asked her what her ideas of the long-term strategy for DSA should be. And she said, I don't think there is a long-term and it really set me back. You know, here's a person in her 20s with socialist politics. That's just the kind of person you'd think should have a, an ambitious sense of the future. But I don't know, there's this resignation that reminds me of German plague poetry from way back when. That resignation is something I'm continuing to think about in the book I'm working on now that's more about climate aesthetics. What do we get when we sign off on our capacity to actually intervene and make things a little bit less worse? Like, yes, things are going to be bad, but we have some ethical and political obligations to try everything we can now to um, stave off that foreclosing of the future and to intervene in its um, uneven distribution of catastrophe. And that requires visions of the future, requires planning. And I think this is the place that, that her comment's really interesting to you, it, where we see this kind of intersection with this loss of futurity, uh, hope crisis, right, and an imagination crisis. We see that converge with a suspicion of mediation in the sense of political institutions or intervening structural forms, because there's sort of this idea that, oh, it's hubris if you have a party that has a vision, that has a platform, that has meaning that people can sign on to just as easily as they could object to it or, or subtract from it, that we have to sort of have this um, just go with the flow kind of in the moment politics, because otherwise it's domination or it's exclusive if we try to formulate hard positions or formulate proactive visions of what we should be strategically working towards. Those things converge, I think, in an unfortunate way there. Yeah, I want to return to this theme, but um, we can't get too Lacanian. This is radio. But you talk <laughs> about how the imaginary has replaced uh, the symbolic in public discourse. What precisely do you mean and how is that significant? What I mean is that there that we're living in a kind of period where um, what in Lacanian psychoanalysis is called the imaginary, which is sort of the domain of images and identity and fantasy and projection and kind of one-to-one -one, uh, equivalence and relation, that that domain has, is sort of inflated in our contemporary psychic and cultural experience relative to a domain that it's usually in some partnership with in the Lacanian scheme, which is the symbolic. And that's the realm of of um, norms and language and uh, narrative and institutions and cultural power in a way. So if the symbolic is attenuated, and there's lots of names that non-Lacanians would give to that, like we're in a post-truth society or a post-fact epistemological climate or, um, you know, that we have information uh, hyperglut and so we're kind of, or we have a literacy crisis, right? There's lots of names that people would give to this um, diminishing of the efficacy of the symbolic of language language and of bridges. What I'm trying to sort of get at with this description of the inflation of the imaginary is posing an alternative to this more journalistic, sociological, pop psychological hypothesis that we have a narcissism epidemic and that you can understand our mental health crises and our cultural diminution as narcissism fueled. I don't think that's a sufficient explanation 
for what people are going through psychically. And I don't think it takes account of our media ecology or our um, kind of economic base. The prominence of narcissism in your analysis is interesting to me because way back when, when I was in graduate school, I was going to write a dissertation on narcissism in American poetry, Emerson, Whitman, and Stevens. And so I spent a lot of time studying the psychoanalytic literature on narcissism. And in those days, uh, what was important about it was not the grandiosity and vanity that we think of in the colloquial such of narcissism, but like an emptiness, a lack within, fragmentation, alienation. Yeah. That angle in narcissism, you know, even though we're talking about 40, 50 years ago, it seems still with us. For sure. What happens when people are sort of remaindered to the imaginary because the symbolic isn't strongly functioning is an incredible amount of lack and alienation um, and an incredible amount of emptiness and suffering that you only have this capacity for one-to-one relation or sort of image-to-image or the um, kind of self in the mirror. Um, You only have this capacity for sort of flat or binaristic or even algorithmic affirmation, disjection, (laughs) swipe left, swipe right, that you don't have the capacity for more profound and more opaque kinds of relations, less transparent, less yes or no, um, and more gray, which those kinds of ambivalent and complicated um, and rewarding relationships end up making space for our lack instead of us having to cover over it with an image of plenitude. You uh, cite uh, Jody Dean's uh, analysis of the decline in symbolic efficiency. That is, there are fewer and fewer things that we have in common. Cultural references are so much more fragmented than they used to be. We see this uh, to some degree in do your own research, find your own truth, all that business. How do we distinguish that do your own research impulse from a healthy skepticism about received narratives? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think if if somebody was really trying to be an expert in epistemic populism or in these kinds of arrogations to the individual of the job of <laughs> finding out whether your information is valid or trying to know for yourself, if you're trying to really study that, you have to contextualize it in a kind of crisis of institutions and attack on institutions like education and like journalism. So I think that if you're talking about an almost ethical or adolescent political orientation of skepticism towards, oh, well, that's just what the man wants me to think. Like, yeah, that impulse um, is uh, potentially the beginning of all kinds of um, critical exercise. But if you have that impulse in a media ecology and in an economic situation and in a political authoritarian situation where you don't have institutions that support your project of skepticism, you don't have you know, well-funded public schools, you don't have independent public media, then you're just on your own devices. You're just supposed to do the research from your belly button. You're just supposed to manifest truth. You're right that there's an impulse to do it yourself or to have some real access to knowledge or some experiential base for new narratives that aren't the dominant ones. But that impulse doesn't work the same in different kinds of institutional and political contexts. I'm speaking with Anna Kornblue, author of Immediacy from Verso. Now, in um, writing, you have a chapter on writing, um, and uh, you talk about the decline of the first-person novel in the late 18th century. Novels of the 19th century, early 20th century tended to be written in the third person. And then the first person started picking up again in the 70s, 80s. What do you make of that? What was going on? First, the decline and then the rise uh, of the first person. Right. So in the very early English novel, there are a bunch that are published in the first person. And then as novel writing really, really explodes, as mass literacy and printing technologies change, and there's just this huge expansion of the number of novels being published, um, there is a pretty rapid transition to the third person being the dominant mode. And this is in the English novel. And that remains the dominant mode from the 1740s (laughs) until the late 20th century. And the diagnosis of that transformation is one that I got a computational analytics um, kind of cultural historian who works with large data sets. And I love those graphs, by the way. They're great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, his graphs are great. Um, so I got him to make me those graphs because he had published the original paper about 18th and 19th century fiction. I think if, if you want to say what's the original decline, I think that the way the first person is working in, in this like handful of really early 18th century fictions is that there's usually an editorial preface or somebody who found the narrative or a kind of frame around the story where there is a, a succession of first person voices or a kind of inter 
interlaying of them. And there is um, a real kind of conviction in distinguishing the novel as this emergent genre that operates partly by um, its claims to be not fantastical, to be not like epic, to be not like romance. So, so to have a kind of uh, individuated uh, experiential potentially secular, kind of probabilistic, scientific situation in the empiricism of a body and in a plausible, kind of recognizable earthly world. But it's not presented as the the emanation of that individual subject. Then when we have the rapid economic transformations that the novel tracks, you know, it's the art form that is coeval with capitalism and unique to capitalism. There is a pretty rapid move towards using the novel in abstract ways and collectivizing ways in maybe disciplining ways, but to practice the third person in particular, to practice third person omniscience and abstraction in ways that kind of account for the um, systematic integrations of the world market uh, for industrialism and for financialization as processes. And then that third person, that fictional consciousness that isn't available, that mode of perception that none of us in our stupid meat envelopes get to have every day. That is the marvel and the gift of the novel in the English tradition, at least, for almost 300 years. And then one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I noticed that that was just not the case anymore, that every novel that I picked up for pleasure reading and every big prize winner and so on was written in the first person. And I just wanted to try to figure out, like, what is the explanation for this? And again, to go back to this tracking of novel forms and novel modes in conjunction with the history of capitalism, is there a transformation in the history of capitalism to which we can correlate this mutation where suddenly there's this turn away from this abstracting mode? There's a turn away from the integrative um, and non-phenomenal and kind of impossible consciousness that third person offers us, and just an immanentization and a turn to personalization and privatization. What could that map onto macroeconomically or culturally was one of the questions that, that I started the book with. And what does it map onto? <laughs> well, as you yourself said, you know, the numeric transition in the kind of starting the inversion of the proportion of majority from third to first uh, starts in the last quarter of the 20th century and then skyrockets in the 21st century. And so that corresponds to what we would now be able to call in hindsight secular stagnation. It corresponds to deindustrialization. It corresponds to the ideological and political formation of neoliberalism. It corresponds to what I call in the book circulation intensification, that we have moved out of a phase of production-centric um, economic activity in the G7 countries and moved into exchange, um, whether that we understand that as finance or we understand that as uh, you know point-to-point contact that does um, what the industry calls disintermediation, cutting out the middleman. But so our, you know, our kind of uberization of everyday economic activities and on-demand services and direct access and so on, all of that seems to me a kind of shift in um, the, uh, the premium in the economic base that is conditioning this shift in our aesthetic modes. Autofiction and auto theory are uh, you, you write a lot about. You uh, quote Maggie Nelson, one of the leading autofiction writers, as saying, I have never been able to answer to comrade, which I thought was a very interesting statement. What does that tell us about the politics of, of this new kind of literature? Yeah, so autofiction is um, a kind of literature that's been around for a long time and has some variability in how it is practiced and in its economic and ideological situations. You know, France is different from the United States and so on, um, but has been a particularly enthusiastically embraced trend in 21st century kind of Anglo uh, fiction. It refers to fictions that are of the self or that are unmade or that are um, kind of manifestive and emanative and fluid. And in the group of autofictionists that um, tend to be celebrated and tend to have like really big prizes and be, you know, really good sales figures and stuff that I'm kind of tracking, they often have really express rejections of fictionality. They really say things like fiction is gross. It's, you know, it makes me nauseous to make up characters or to imagine a plot. I can only write about myself. The only thing that's real is a voice. That quote from Tao Lin, which is a name that takes me back to like 2014, was a big deal uh-huh. in New York. Um, he doesn't want to make up things to entertain people. He wants the writing to be helpful to him. A vision of writing as therapy. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that this sense of the envelope of the self and that that's the only authentic stuff and that's the only legitimate representation really does, you know, to go back to the question about comrade, cohere with a kind of um, political vision of atomization and of the just illegitimacy of institutions or of forms that would sustain and scaffold comradeship or solidarity, you know, to go back to your question about DSA and so on, right? So I, I think that, you you know, it's not that there's a, a total correlation between these aesthetic ideologies and however people do political practice, but I do think that there is a, a lot of rhyme between a certain kind of political suspicion for collective action or collective organization and for the forms that would mediate collective organization, help us hold together our mass affect of the protest and vehiculate it into collective power, <laughs> collective sovereignty. That's work of, of intervening forms and the, the suspicion of that stuff as, oh, that's just going to oppress us. That's just going to exclude people. That's just going to dominate us where it's just corrupt. Those are the master's tools and so on. But that political suspicion is part of this rejection of mediation that its aesthetic face is the nobody should write fiction. Well, this also takes us back to um, the 1970s suspicion or 80s suspicion of uh, master narratives, grand narratives. Everything's about particularity. Yes, it's true. Um, and even more than particularity, like, um, you know, kind of singularity. And like, um, this is the algorithmic, I think, feature of the present that, uh, that everything is equal data, but that every little nugget of it is supposed to be its discrete shimmering atom. Um, and that, that you are, um, somehow irreplicable as your, uh, singular discrete experience and that that's, you know, that kind of vibrating in your own intensity is the legitimate ethical position or the, the correct um, epistemological position. And you can trace these, as you say, suspicion of master narratives, you can trace some of the, you know, do your own research epistemic populism to ways of digesting and bastardizing, you know, a standpoint epistemology and feminist critiques of science and older kinds of philosophical objections to philosophy <laughs> or to knowledge. Does that mean that those were always wrongheaded or does it mean that the context in which their kind of approach to knowledge originated has changed so much in 50 years? I think that's a real question. This lust for, um, I don't know, an effulgent presence or self-evident existence uh, and skepticism of any kind of analysis um, or structure, it presents a couple of difficulties for me. One, analytically speaking, to anybody who's like, comes out of Marx and Freud, things aren't always the way they seem right. uh, at first glance. But also, aesthetically, I thought of Wallace Stevens' lines about um, making the visible a little hard to see as uh -huh. being a source of, you know, a beautiful complexity in life. Yeah. They want to throw all that out the window, it seems. Yeah, I think that's what is at stake in trying to understand that we live in an aesthetic regime that is different from that. There's a just supposed to be self-evidence, manifestiveness, transparency, you know, hashtag manifest, it dominates TikTok for a reason right now, you know, um, that there is an aesthetic regime that we are in, which presents itself precisely as not a style, right? It's just this surging intensity and surging realness. I'm definitely trying to do analysis on the book. I'm trying to step out of that stuff, even though a lot of it is really charming or compelling or righteous. And a lot of it is the source of influencer brands or, you know, critical accolades or MacArthur Genius Prizes from Maggie Nelson and so on, right? What might it require of us as, say, critics or scholars um, to step back from what seems to be the self-evidently valuable quality of manifesting and to sort of ask like where did that come from as our as our mode <laughs> that requires thinking at scale um, so there's a lot of kinds of examples in the book, for instance, you know, I, I, I'm working with more kinds of objects than literary scholars might be supposed to or cultural scholars. It requires historicization, right? I'm telling a story that starts in the 1960s in some ways, um, but also starts with the history of capitalism in other ways. It requires big words sometimes <laughs> or things that aren't self-evident, you know, kind of building up concepts, putting into medium new ideas or integrating different theorists and trying to achieve knowledge and distance and abstraction and perspective. And those strike me as, um, yeah, virtues that are not um, in demand in a lot of contemporary theory even. 
And finally, um, the things you criticize emerge from what Madonna and others have called the material world. And to change the culture, we have to change that material world. But this culture, by prohibiting or making difficult criticism and organization, is an obstacle to that transformation. Uh, How do we um, untie that knot? That is such the question that keeps me up at night all the time. And a lot of why I wrote the book, we need thick meaning and collectively held visions and narratives um, in order to sustain momentum and move together and make things better. So how do we arrive at those kinds of shared representations or shared mediations when (laughs) we have a rejection of mediation all around, whether it's political ideology or aesthetic ideology or economic value? I do think, and I say this in the very end of the book, that there um, is a tremendous heart that we should take in a lot of cultural industry workplace mobilization. So maybe the artists aren't giving us a lot to work with, but the people who work in museums and at book presses and at academic institutions and at cultural institutions and newspapers, uh, the kind of really intense labor militancy in the pandemic era around those kinds of institutions, I think, is a real cause for hope and a real model for us. You can take the immediacy lesson and fetish of the here to think about your immediate domain of, of, of influence, your workplace, and um, to think about cultural work as work. I think that those struggles and those kinds of institutions are providing a, a model for us. And then I do also think that there are you know residual art forms that still help us to think about collective mobilization or help us to think about world making and better visions. Um, And there are surely some new ones on the horizon, potentially, that are marginal or emergent. But it is a not. And I don't think that we're going to have better art until we have better institutional conditions for it. And that is really about public education and public media institutions and opportunities um, for um, all kinds of people to participate in the publishing industry or in production studios and so on. And so to think about the labor of making culture is where I would go for that knot. That was Anna Kornblue, author of Immediacy, published by Verso. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Threads of Empathy by Behind the News' fave Bergsonist from an imminently forthcoming album, Resist Colonial Power by Any Means Necessary. You can find it all on Bandcamp. Till next week, bye. (laughs) 